Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're doing well, feeling happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. My first guest is Olympic gymnast, Cirque du Soleil acrobat, entertainment executive, and now author Mary Sanders. Mary inherited an Olympic dream from her father, a Big Ten champion from the University of Michigan. Determined to follow in his footsteps, the young gymnast struggled through training setbacks, financial hardships, and personal rivalries to compete in the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens. But that achievement was only the beginning for a woman determined to reinvent herself and constantly raise her own standards for success. In her memoir, 9 by 35 now available wherever fine books are sold, Mary recounts her journey from Olympian to Cirque du Soleil acrobat to entertainment executive while balancing life at home with two children. It's a story of dedication and personal sacrifice that led to success and yes, reinvention. Mary Sanders joined me via Zoom. You say the book has been a long time coming, that you had the idea for a long time. What changed and made you put it to paper? It's funny how things happen in life when, you know, light just kind of goes off in your head. I've had an idea to write this book for so long because I've met people throughout different parts of my life and they're like, I can't believe you're a gymnast. I can't believe you're in Cirque du Soleil. And it's very hard to explain to different people all the different aspects of your life. So I always thought, you know, I got to put this into a book someday because it'll just explain everything to everyone. <laughs> and uh, especially having kids, um, you know, this way they'll be able to really read about every single aspect of my life. And it just so happens another gymnast, his name's Kyle Schufelt, he's actually an Olympic gold medalist, wrote a book. Um, I think before the pandemic or during it. And I said, wow, congratulations. And he said, I can't wait to read yours. I know you have a story to tell. So that was kind of the light bulb that went off and was like, okay, now's the time. And do you think that writing everything down uh, helped you understand the past in kind of a different way? Absolutely. I think, you know, in reading your profile Richard and following you for years I think you have you, you know you set lots of goals and you push forward and you push forward and we don't look back too much so I think I did that a lot in my life I just set mm -hmm. goals and I would achieve them and keep pushing myself keep pushing myself but I never really reflected on the past or maybe took a moment to really heal from certain things so writing the book for me was extremely therapeutic it forced me to dive deep down into emotions I didn't even know I had and kind of helped me heal better from those situations. And what were some of those things specifically? You talk about uh, various things in the book. Tell me what you were healing from. I think growing up as a, a gymnast, a high performing level gymnast uh, from a very young age, traveling the world alone, I had very strict coaches. I had to go through, you know, I, I think what most would call some emotional abuse early on. But back in the day when, when I was a gymnast, that all felt quite normal. And especially mm -hmm. having my father as my coach, I was born into the sport of gymnastics. So it was very normal for me to have a strict coach to really have someone firm on me. But I think that left some emotional scars early on. And then, of course, I went through some pretty highs and lows after sport, trying to find my way. I went through a lot of injuries, a lot of uh, depression in Cirque du Soleil. I was married and divorced. I didn't really recover from that, uh, my first marriage. And I went through, you know, I think a lot of highs and lows, just retiring from performing and mm -hmm. 
fully hanging up my circus, my gymnastic leotards for good. I think I struggled a lot to move past that and find my purpose to reinvent my life again. I didn't really know what path to do. So I think I had a lot of obstacles to overcome to really get myself to this next chapter of my life. Well, you say that you looked uh, to your mother and older brothers for inspiration. What did you learn from them? So growing up, my father was very, you know, he was a lot more than just a father. He was mm. my idol, my inspiration, my coach. So I looked to him for so much, but he passed away when I was eight years old. So then, of course, that just left my mother, who had to work three jobs to support three kids. So I think a lot of parents can relate to how hard that is mm -hmm. and, you know, supporting three kids on one income and especially an aspiring Olympic gymnast, it's, right. it's very expensive. So I really looked to my mom for support for everything. She was my backbone, my everything. She did everything in her power to send me across the world to every single competition. And I've never met someone so strong like her. And I write about it a lot in my book. My brothers helped me out a lot in terms of school because I miss so much school. They would really help me out with my projects and just having, you know, brothers normalcy at home. I really look to them just to really keep me on solid ground throughout all the turbulence. You're listening to Mary Sanders on The Richard Krause Show. Her book, Nine Lives by 35, is available now wherever you buy fine books. The life of a high-performing athlete especially at the age that you were, has to be very difficult. People can't see it now, but behind you is a display of all the medals. I don't know if that's even all of them, but there's a lot of them on the wall behind you. So you were working at a very high level. Tell me about the pressure that comes along with that. Because as a young person, I would think that not only are you driven for yourself, but you don't want to disappoint the adults that are around you. It's a, it's a, it's very difficult situation to be in when you're not really probably mature enough to really understand the the implications of what's going on around you. Absolutely. I think when you peak as an athlete, it sort of happens quickly and sometimes overnight. Mm. I wasn't naturally amazing. I wasn't, you know, born as a champion. I had to work very, very hard. And that's probably why my father was super strict on me and coaches were super strict because I was pigeon-toed. I wasn't naturally like a ballerina. I, you know, I had to work very, very hard um, in gymnastics. And I started out in artistic gymnastics with the bars and the beam and all of that. Didn't make it there. So I switched to rhythmic gymnastics when I was 10 years old. And that's with the ribbons, balls, and hoops. So right. that's very late in life to, as a gymnast to switch to another sport, discipline, and still try and make the Olympics. So I was always like, you know, a pigeon in, in a in a in a lake of swans, I guess you could say. <laughs> I was always trying to just like, I can do this. So I had to work extra hard, more so than I think a lot of other gymnasts around me. And but then I did peak. The work paid off. I became, you know, junior champion, senior champion um, quite quickly. And then I had the weight of the world on my shoulders. I was representing my country. I had to not disappoint my coach who, you know, they put all their efforts into you. You can't disappoint them. My mother was spending every single penny on my, my gymnastics. So I didn't want that to all be for nothing. You know, she went bankrupt a few times and I, I couldn't not work hard. You know, that would be such a disservice, I think, um, to all the sacrifices she did for me. So, yeah, you're right. I, I think it's a lot of weight on young athletes' shoulders, especially gymnasts. And 
I mean, I just don't know anything else. I'm I'm happy I did it. I have a daughter now and I'm not too sure if I'd want to put her in that position, but I learned a lot of valuable lessons and hard work pays off. That's definitely one of them. And I, I think it's really helped me later in life as well. At the age that all that was happening, so you switch age 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, those are usually kind of rebellious years. You know, the 13, 14, the teen years become a little bit more difficult. Did you have to kind of fight that down a little bit, the streak of rebellion? Absolutely. I, I can say I've lived everywhere as well in Toronto, uh, where I grew up, all around the city. We moved every year just because we couldn't afford the latest house we were in. So I was always switching high schools, switching schools. I never felt like I really belonged in school. I was barely there. I was always traveling the world competing. And I remember my my last high school year, I was going to York Mills Collegiate, and I just barely graduated because I almost didn't attend 50% of my classes. So I didn't have time for the socialite stuff after school. I had to go to school, and then I trained from 4 to 8.30 every day. So while everyone else was enjoying their teens and adolescents, you know, getting to know each other, going to parties, dating. I was really busy just working in the gym and traveling the world. Gymnastics was my focus. It was my number one. Of course, I had a lot of temptations like any other teenager, <laughs> but I'm really, really grateful that I didn't really fall into a lot of the temptations that were around me, definitely as a young teenager. Do you think that the discipline that it must have taken to not hang out with the girlfriends at school and not go home and watch friends. Instead, you go work for four and a half hours, you know, and in, in, in practice. Um, what lasting effect has that had on you? Chris Hadfield, I spoke with him a little while ago in the astronaut, and he said, oh, I think like an engineer. Everything I do, I think like an engineer. Do you think like a gymnast still in terms of the discipline that you need uh, to just make your way through life? It's funny, before, you know, we spoke today, I was, I was working, I was making dinner, I was doing like 700 things. And I was just like, you know, for me, that's quite normal. It's mm. very normal for me to multitask and to do many different things in my day. I think I'm just really, really used to that. You know, growing up as a gymnast, I had to be a gymnast, I had to go to school, I had to, you know, I just had to have so many responsibilities early on. So I think for me, I am most happy when I'm doing a lot of things and I have a lot on my plate. I'm I'm not really happy just relaxing. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I think it's just instilled into me at a young age to work hard. And a lot of people tell me like, who are you? Like, because I have so many different avenues in my life. And I know you do too, Richard. And I know you've worked very, very hard from a young age from the bottom to get where you are. So I think it's just kind of instilled in you. I don't know if it's the gymnast in me, I think all of us have a trait in ourselves that is the reason behind why we push ourselves. And it just excites me to have the next goal. I think that's what keeps me going. I think probably it is in you. And that's what pushed you to become the gymnast that you became not the other way around. You didn't become a gymnast and then learn the discipline. I think you had to have the discipline just there already. I think so. I forget what the stat is, but any professional athlete, I think any Olympic or very successful athlete, I think it's, you know, 70 or 80% um, mental and then 30% physical skill, mm -hmm. something like that. I forget yeah. the stat, but a lot, 
about being a great athlete is to have the mental strength. And you can be physically amazing. You can be naturally talented, which I wasn't really, uh, you know, as many others, but you have to have that mental strength, the mental toughness. And I think that's what you carry through the rest of your life. And that's what helps you after sport or after you've achieved one goal to move on to the next goal. You just keep applying that mentality. It's not, oh, I'm, I'm an Olympic gymnast. Okay, my, that's it. My life's over. I've accomplished that. I don't need to do anything else. I never really, you know, I'm always trying to see what's next. How can I reinvent myself? You know, I want my kids to really think sky's the limit, you know? Well, your book, Nine Lives by 35, is all about reinvention and all about all the things that you have done. And there's an interesting quote that I saw from you where you say, you're no longer afraid of the word no. And in order to reinvent yourself, you can't be afraid of the word no. But were you ever, at what time in your life were you afraid to say, no, I can't do that or I won't do that? Right. I think after. I finished competing at the Olympics. I competed in the 2004 Athens Olympics on my 19th birthday. And then I went right away to Cirque du Soleil. Right. And in at Cirque, I said yes to everything. I was on stage two hours, like a day for the whole entire show. I would never say no. I was like, yeah, sure, I can do that. Yeah, of course, I'll do that. Like total yes woman, you know? And I burnt myself out. And I was yeah. just constantly saying yes in my personal, professional life, like outpouring way too much for friends and family and it wasn't until I think when I started writing this book that I really realized you know I it's okay to say no put yourself first make time for you first I was really um, operating a lot of times with an empty tank my mom calls it if your tank's empty you cannot function at a high level so now I constantly am conscious of filling that tank um, slowly and I think a really big lesson for me was getting my book published. Mm -hmm. I received a lot of no's. You know, I, I've had a great life. It's been very exciting, but who cares, right? Not everyone <laughs> wants to hear about it. <laughs> and, you know, you are not everything to everyone. So I received a lot of no's in the process of getting published, but I, you only need one yes. And I got the one yes, and I'm, I'm super grateful for it. You literally mm -hmm. ran away and joined the circus. You joined yeah. Art du Soleil. So yeah. tell me a little bit about that. You you mentioned there briefly uh, that you were on stage, you know, two hours a night, which is incredibly grueling. If you've ever seen one of those shows, you know how physical it is. And it burned you out. But it must have been great for a while. You yeah. must have loved it at some point. Absolutely. I was super, super grateful and lucky that Cirque du Soleil scouted me. After, you know, competing at the Olympics, many athletes compete at the highest level. And then they wake up the next day and they're like, now what? What do yeah. I do with my life? Because you just don't have that mental capacity sometimes to think of what's next after the Olympics. So I was so lucky that Cirque was like, hey, this can be next for you. Come work with us. We'll pay for half your schooling. I studied public relations while I was on the road, right? So I was so lucky to kind of have that buffer into the real world, into the working world, uh, making money right away at Cirque. They're just amazing for that. I think they provide such a great transition for athletes. You're listening to Mary Sanders on The Richard Krause Show. Her book, Nine Lives by 35, is available now wherever you buy fine books. But it definitely was really tough. Two hours a day would be a good day, but mostly there's two shows a day. So I guess that's four hours a day on stage. So it was it was really hard. I found it a little bit difficult to do the exact same thing every day. 
I was used to that as a gymnast, with the same routine, the same schedule, the same meal, the same diet, everything was the same. Coming into Cirque, I was like, woo, let's have fun. But it was a lot, a lot of work. I, you know, I gained a bunch of weight after the Olympics. I was just living my best life, but it was very right. hard for me to do trampoline and, and do, to be really physical again. So it, and it's it was very technical a- too, I would imagine. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's, it's death defying, right? If you're not on your game, you can get injured. You have mm-hmm. to be very, very mentally present. You know, you're flying through the air every night. You have to be super present. So it, it was a really incredible experience. Um, and I'm glad I did it for the time I did. I just knew I didn't want to be, you know, 80 and, and, and a clown. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I absolutely ran away to the circus. I was accepted uh, to Western University yeah. and I was going there to be normal after the Olympics, I call it. But I just ran away to the circus instead. <laughs> I don't blame you. So. <laughs> How do you navigate the lows? Because in everyone's life, it's not just all peaks. You know, after the Olympics, I'm sure you're riding on some sort of high. And then there's a low that happens. What do I do now? I've just competed in front of the entire world. What could possibly be next? And you might flounder a little bit. Or once you leave Cirque du Soleil, and you talk about in the book that you you have had moments in your life when you've sort of floundered and one wasn't sure what would be next. Um, how do you make it to the next chapter? Absolutely. You know, I I try to end every chapter of my book with a little bit of reflection and advice just based on my situation. You know, I'm not here to tell anyone this is how you should lead your life, but this Mm -hmm. is what I've learned and how I got through certain situations. I it took me a long time to really hang up the leotards and hang up, you know, the circus leotards and all that. And I, I, I can say not until even a couple of years ago that I've really closed that door and moved on. Of course, I've had a really great career um, since Cirque du Soleil, but I, you know, it was, it was definitely not without some lows. And I think it's definitely like a feeling of loss. Mm. You know, you compete at the highest level or you're on stage every night, sold out crowds, you're getting a standing ovation every night. The adrenaline is addictive. And then you stop that and you don't know where to get that adrenaline anymore. And you're waking up sad and you're, you're, you're kind of like shuffling around life. You're, and no one teaches you how to like get into the real world after you've been in entertainment for so long or been on a stage or sold out arenas every single night. No one teaches you, hey, what do you want to do next? Let's yeah. dive into this. Like there's no, I mean, unless you have a mentor in life, I didn't really. I had to just sort of dive into the corporate world, hate a lot of jobs along the way. And, and really have that lull and that low and that depression. And so I, I try now, you know, hopefully my story can be hopefully a guiding light to some athletes kind of transitioning into the real world to help them in that transition. Because I think that's where a lot of athletes, a lot of celebrities really fall off, right? They They come off the biggest high of their life on stage into like the lows of the lows with no help. And I think that's where we see a lot of addiction and a lot of problems today. What do you say to someone who allows what's happened in their past to define them negatively? I think it has to do with all those negativities or situations we hold on to that we don't acknowledge, we don't forgive others or forgive ourselves. And I think that only holds us back. I'm really not one to look back and and be like, oh, I did this. Good for you, Mary. Or, oh, pat on the back. Like, Again, no one cares what you've done in the past. Like, <laughs> you have to move forward yeah. and you have to be proud of yourself 
You have to love yourself first. And I honestly don't think that's possible unless you reflect on the past. Close those doors really shut for good and lock them and move forward like green lights only ahead. And my mom actually held a whole retirement party for me a couple of years ago because I think she realized I hadn't really fully locked the doors behind me and moved right. forward forgiving myself and others. So that kind of helped me with some closure. That was Mary Sanders on her book, Nine Lives by 35, which is available now wherever you buy fine books. My guest in this segment is American comedian, radio host, writer, musician, actor, and author, Dave Hill. He's also a part-time Canadian, as he explained in his previous book, Parking the Moose. He'll explain more about that in this interview. Today, we're here to talk about his latest book, The Awesome Game, One Man's Incredible Globe-Crushing Hockey Odyssey. At the heart of the book is a simple question. Why is hockey so incredibly awesome? We attempt to answer that and much more in this interview with Dave Hill, who joined me via Zoom from New York City. I was surprised to learn uh, that hockey was not a particularly popular sport when you were growing up in Cleveland. And you said that it was a really lonely existence being a hockey fan in that city. Uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, growing up in Cleveland, you know, we it wasn't, I mean, this, hockey's more popular now, but, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s uh you know we had we had an nhl team for just two years we had a wha team very briefly and uh you know it's it's really like browns calves uh you know it's baseball mm -hmm. football basketball like most of the united states but uh so but you know my grandfather was from clinton ontario so my siblings and I were tossed onto the ice, you know, at about <laughs> three years old. We had no choice in the matter. So, you know, and from that, I, I, you know, got into hockey and all that. But it was a, it was a lonely, lonely existence for a hockey fan and player. Growing, you know, there's a couple other kids in my grade in school who who played hockey, but uh, it was just kind of, you know, you'd you'd be out on the playground and say like, oh. You see the Rangers Flyers game last night, and you just get blank <laughs> stares usually. And so, what was what was it about hockey that that grabbed you? I mean, the Canadian roots, I get that you were thrown on the ice, but you could have skated the other way and taken up basketball instead. What happened? I don't know. You know, I just never. I mean, that's a bit of the point in the book, but one of the, among the points anyway is uh, hockey is just the one sport that I really you know, gravitated towards, I, I just, I mean, foot football, I pretend, you know, that especially growing up in Cleveland, it's like you had to show up to school on Monday, knowing the score of the Browns game and <laughs> what happened. It was like social currency. And I, I pretended to, to be into it. And then one day I just, I think when I started playing guitar, I was like, I'm not pretending to be into stuff. I'm not into, I'm into only hockey and I'm not, I'm not pretending to like any other sports, uh, but I, I don't know something about it. I think it's just, it really has like, you know, most of the other sports I find to be maybe not one dimensional, but fewer dimensions than hockey, mm -hmm. you know, but hockey, hockey has, you know, the action and the intensity and brutality of football. It has the, you know, the speed of, you know, soccer, baseball, the, you know, the pitching and hitting anyway, and, uh, and the finesse of, you know, it's really like ballet on, on ice, you know, it's just, it's, uh, 
I don't know. I, I, I think it's a metaphor for life itself. That's what I think of, of hockey. I, I think it just is, uh, it is just amazing in a way that no other sport, I mean, there's sports that, you know, soccer is similar, but mm -hmm. soccer is just quite simple by comparison also, I think. And how is it a metaphor for life? I think, you know, you have, you know, precision, chance, chaos, uh, <laughs> dumb luck, yeah. tenacity, uh, just every, it's kind of every. The odd punch to the face. Yeah. Yeah. Every aspect of life is, is, is out there on the ice, I think, um, in, in, a, in a beautiful way. Now, Cleveland did have the Cleveland Barons, and one of those players, a guy called Len Frigg, made quite an impression on you when you were young. Yeah, absolutely. Len, but my, I went to one Barons game. My grandfather and my dad took me and my brother to a game, and we sat behind the penalty box. So I got a good look at Len Frigg a few times. Well, you know, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but later learned that he was like, the one team he played for the Barons, he was that led in penalty minutes. Mm. So it wasn't surprising that he was in the box a lot. You're listening to Dave Hill on the Richard Krause Show. His book, The Awesome Game, One Man's Incredible Globe-Crushing Hockey Odyssey, is available wherever fine books are sold. His name, you know, it just was burned on my brain from that night. My whole life, you know, I would just think, you know, like, where, where's Len Frigg now? Like, what's he up to? And he was kind of this journeyman player, you know, played for the Barons, the California Seals, the Blackhawks, and then, you know, in and out, in and out of minor league play, and even played professional roller hockey one or two seasons. And, but I, he was always in my mind. I even like, I bought a picture of him from his Barons years, and it's, it had been hanging in my bathroom for years. I kind of have a hockey bathroom because my girlfriend wouldn't allow any other room to be mm -hmm. the hockey room. So uh, with this book, I was like, I'm going to track him down. So I just went on the internet. It was actually frighteningly easy. I just went to, uh, you know, like a, one of those address sites and it gave me his number, name, address. You know, it was like, yeah. this guy comes up, Len Frigg, 70 years. I'm like, yeah, he'd be about 70. And uh I tracked him down and I called the number. It was his cell phone. And <laughs> I said, is this Len Frigg from the Cleveland Barons? And he was kind of like, uh, I guess, yeah. Uh, and he he works, he installs basketball and tennis courts all over the country. So, you know, I said, I want to, I would love to meet you and chat with you for my book. And he's like, well, I'm in a different city every week. And I said, I'll come wherever you are. I'll fly, you know, like take you to dinner. And I think he thought I was some sort of lunatic. Yep. And so it, you know, I, I chased him for about a year, I would say. And then finally it just worked out. He's like, oh, I'm going to be in New York tomorrow. So I met him. Uh, we had uh, some, some beer and Mexican, Mexican food um, one day. And it was, it was, I still think he probably left thinking that guy is <laughs> a weirdo. Uh, but, uh, it was really great uh, and, and you know, pretty amazing to connect with someone who made such an impression. Uh, yeah, it was a touchstone for you. Yeah, 
Well, you offered to travel uh, to meet with Len Frigg. You also, you traveled not only to meet him. Well, you didn't ultimately do that, but you would have. But you traveled around the world uh, to look at all different sort of aspects of hockey. Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, Nairobi, not a place that I would normally uh, associate with hockey. No, I I wound up in Nairobi. Uh, it was the darndest thing. I... Uh, you know, as part of being obsessed with hockey, I'm obsessed with jerseys and just, mm-hmm. you know, I have my Nordiques hat on. I'm just a sucker for hockey ephemera of all sorts. And so, but I, I believe the best jerseys are outside of the NHL. Uh, I, t- you know, I think just the minor league and juniors just have cooler. They, they're not afraid to, you know, have a really crazed looking animal or blood or, you know <laughs> Sudbury wolves has one maybe the best example a, a crazed animal that is, has blood dripping from it one is one of the best jerseys ever I think uh but I, I went on the internet searching you know coolest or best non-NHL jerseys and I found this list and on the list was uh the Kenya ice lions and I was like Kenya that must be some small town in Ontario I've never heard of. And then, you know, very quickly realized like, oh, it's the it's the country. So I found these guys, that, you, know, you know, on Facebook or something and, and said, you know, can I come there and play with you guys? And they said, sure. So I flew there and uh, and play. the rink was closed at the time. It, it opened like two weeks later, it had been closed during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so they they had been playing roller hockey to to stay sharp. So I had a pair of rollerblades. Never played roller hockey, but I was like, oh, how how hard could it be? And uh, and not, also not to mention, I was like literally twenty five, thirty years older than a lot of these guys playing. And uh, they they smacked me around pretty good. I have to say. <laughs> You decided to do a comedy show while you were there, which yeah. you called a character builder. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's sort of character, but that's sort of my euphemism for uh, something going horrib- not horribly wrong, or <laughs> not going particularly well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I always try. It's I. It's fun to get on. You know, whenever anywhere I go, if I can, you know, do a show while I'm there and just kind of add it to my lists of places I've performed. Right. So I, you know, I was going to be in in Nairobi for about a week and I I looked and I found some comedy shows and I asked uh you know I wrote and I said oh can I I uh can I do the show and they said sure so I went and uh it was really part of the reason I think it went I mean there's many reasons that it went badly I think but <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the main reasons I was having such a good time there that I was just in a I I I never take it for granted almost never take it for granted going on stage. I'm always like I'm gonna go out there and do my best and we'll see how it goes. But I think I was like, oh you know, I'm having a good time. I'm a pro. I'll just go out there and do my thing. And I was a little maybe too uh I don't know, but I so I think I jinxed it. maybe but uh yeah they mostly just stared at me in a way that was very 
entertaining uh, uh for me anyway i don't they i don't think were very entertained <laughs> by me at all i texted my girlfriend loves she loves a great show but yeah. she also i think just as much she loves a terrible show yeah. so as soon as i got off stage i texted her i was like oh you really missed a doozy they uh it was i mean i just got out of there normally you know i would stick around and chat with the other performers or i was just like i'm getting out of here <laughs> <laughs> Well, you also went to Poland. Uh, yeah. When you learned that your sister-in-law's second cousin was uh, a, a hockey player over there, what did you learn about hockey in Poland? I mean, I learned that it, it's nuts. Like, I, I never would have expected this, but, I mean, there's more places I need to go to see games, but hands down, the craziest hockey fans I've ever seen are in Poland. It was it was nuts. I mean, they, they it's like soccer hooliganism. Like they're just, I went, I walked up to their, I went to, is in Katowice, the 11th largest city in Poland. Right. And the Katowice, GKS Katowice was playing Krakow, Krakowia. And uh, I went to this game and I swear just approaching the arena, these God, everyone's outside smoking. They're sort of looking over their shoulders, like, like looking, seemingly sizing me up, like whether I needed my ass kicked before the game. <laughs> and uh, which I kind of, I kind of like because it, yeah. you know, I, I liked being viewed as a threat. You're listening to Dave Hill on the Richard Krause Show. His book, The Awesome Game: One Man's Incredible Globe-Crushing Hockey Odyssey, is available wherever fine books are sold. And and I wasn't sure. I'm like, am I imagining this? But then I hung out with some of the players and I told them, you know, this feeling, and they were like, oh yeah, they were definitely sizing you up and deciding whether they needed to kick your ass. And it was nuts. Like they are just chanting and going nuts like even between periods like you i was in line for a beer after the first period and they're going nuts you would have sw sworn it was the last minute of play like in the stanley cup wow. tie wow. score it, they were just bonkers i mean they fight in the streets it's <laughs> full on they're marching like i had crazy jet lag and i was there i was going to the game at night and i was in my hotel during the day trying to take a nap like literally like hours before the game and they're just in the streets just walking around screaming going nuts it's it's amazing I and mean, I I, tr I went to three games in Katowice and I one of them I almost started crying because I I couldn't believe like how much fun I was having all alone in Poland <laughs> completely alone just like I'm like I would live I would move to Katowice if I could be guaranteed that much fun yeah every um, single day oh my god it was just it was amazing and the and the game I almost cried at I genuinely like teared up I wasn't even drinking it was like a daytime game I had, had a hot chocolate so it could, you know it couldn't be I wasn't because I was overserved or something. Right, right. right, right. <laughs> your other books have been a, a documentation of your life's your life experience. This is a, a bit more narrow cast, but you you yeah. banded it by traveling and going around the world. What do you hope people take away from the book? Well, I you know I hope that I, mean, I hope it's an enjoyable read for anyone. I, I mean, I like I think you know hopefully it is, and I. 
that's been the feedback so far, which is nice. But uh, you know, on on the other end of it, I think hockey fans will really enjoy it because it's it's really a love letter to hockey and everything about hockey. You know, beyond, you know, I I try not to like the book's not really bogged down in like stats and play by play at all. It's more like a celebration of just the whole thing. And so, you know, I'm 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 thinking that. I'm hoping that people that aren't into hockey or maybe not even into sports at all will be like, hey, I'm going to give maybe this is the sport for me. Because, I mean, that's part of it is I'm not this is a dangerous thing to say, maybe, but I'm not a sports fan. Like I'm not I am a hockey fan and I'm not like you could hook me up to a heart monitor and make me watch the football like the Super Bowl or the NBA championships. And I would just. I, it's like a dog watching TV. I just yeah. have no reaction. <laughs> I just don't care. And I used to pretend to care as a kid. And then one day I was like, no more. Yeah. But yeah, it, my even my best friends know like not to invite me to. They'll maybe last minute be like, you want to go have these tickets? But they know like, don't invite Dave over to watch the game. He doesn't care. <laughs> I, either do I. I'm not really a sports guy, but... You know, I grew up in Canada, so hockey, you have to pay attention when it's on. Yeah, but you, you know what's interesting about Canada? You know, in America, football's the the main sport, and, like, guys like me are not, you know, especially, you know, I'm a comedian, a musician, in the arts, as it were, and so I'm not, like, a, you know, I'm not going to hang out and watch the football game as many as much as some other guys, but then so many of my Canadian friends are also comedians, and musicians and they're like oh ho- that's what hockey was for me in canada that was like the big sp- I, I they're like i was the one kid in my school who didn't play hockey so weirdly most of my canadian friends are are, are weirdos to my mind because they didn't play hockey that was dave hill on the richard Krause show his book the awesome game one man's incredible globe crushing hockey odyssey is available wherever fine books are sold Big thanks to all my guests for stopping by today. But of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon. Mm -hmm.